Cutting for Sign with Ron Cecil and Daniel Pinnerkline. The bad white man calling the devil. The Yadabai calling eyes like the sky. Hey everybody, this is Ron Cecil. Welcome to Cutting for Sign. Join me with uh, my... I'm going to start again. <laughs> Take two. <laughs> yeah. Hey everybody, welcome to Cutting for Sign. I am Ron Cecil. This is Daniel Pinner-Klein. And today we have Michael McDonald, a friend of mine for the probably close to a decade now. Yeah. Somebody who has been on the path of finding the clues, not just kind of locally, but all over the world and has done a lot of good in a lot of people's lives. You have a life that I would say is as close to like real adventure as I've met in some folks, Mm -hmm. Uh, like disregarding kind of the pro athlete people I know. So uh, I'll let you introduce yourself, say whatever you'd like to say and um, just, you know, go ahead. Oh gosh. I mean, I, yeah, Mike, uh, you know, Michael, when I'm in trouble, but both work really, really well. Um, and gosh, I don't know what to begin even saying other than I'm super thankful. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the things that's a, a little bit unique about you is your religious upbringing. Um, sure. why don't you start there? Yeah. So I grew up in, um, a faith tradition that was called, it's called Baha'i, which is a religion that comes out of the Middle East, out of Iran, specifically out of the 1850s. Um, and, uh, was an incredible upbringing, you know, Baha'is teach, uh, three main kind of things, but one of them is equality between men and women, equality between races and equality between religions. And if you can imagine that being a message coming out of Iran in the 1850s, that was obviously met with a ton of resistance and that caused Baha'is to kind of spread out all over the place. And that's how a kid from Canada, little small ski town uh, ended up being, um, you know, growing up in a family of Baha'is. Uh, it also meant that the community that I surrounded myself with was, um, I mean, it was Persians. It was lots of different folks from different um, ethnic backgrounds. And that was the kind of household that I, uh, I grew up in. And, uh, you know, my, my mom uh, and stepdad at the time uh, were both very active practicing Baha'is. And uh, that led a lot of my, not just faith journey, but life journey in terms of what's important, what matters, you know, um, if equality between men and women really matter, it meant that my mom sent me and my younger brother to China when I was 14 and he was 12 with no parents, just the two of us off to China to go to a conference that was about the um, plight of injustice for women around the world. So 40,000 women show up in China and it's like a month and a half long type conference. Hillary Clinton and Sally Fields and those kind of people are there, but you've got women from all over the world that are coming and sharing stories about what's happening around injustice. And so as a 14-year-old boy being shaped by that story because of my mom and the Baha'i faith saying, this is going to be important. You need to be a, a, a person of honor who is going to fight for the injustice of, of women if we're going to actually do this equality thing that, um, you know, the prophet that we were following, uh, Baha'u'llah would, would, would teach about. And so, you know, those types of things, I think the Baha'i faith really impacted me, um, in my journey in those early, um, early stages for sure. 
I'm, I'm, I'm like, I want to jump on a lot of things here. Number one, uh, and you can, you can kind of pepper this throughout, but I would imagine a, a faith journey like that having like an impact that's still resounding in your life. Absolutely. I mean, you know, cause since then I've, I've, you know, and everyone's got their own journey. I've, I've shifted kind of uh, at least a faith paradigm um, where I would put myself, maybe wouldn't call myself a Christian, but I would put myself in this Jesus camp because it all depends on what you, you know, what people consider that to mean. Um, but even in the process of that, you know, you step into uh, different church paradigms and institutional paradigms, and that can impact uh, a lot of things. And my Baha'i upbringing has impacted the way that I'm going to approach potentially some of those patriotic uh, systems inside of the church and, and inside of other um, institutions. And so for sure, I would say that my Baha'i paradigm, I didn't just, you know, turn away and go that none of that matters anymore. I'm now on this different paradigm. I'm going, no, gosh, there were such incredible things that I learned yeah. through that process um, that still resound and, and ring with me today. Absolutely. Amazing. It also sounds like maybe your hunger and thirst for adventure. And I, and, I, and I use that term. I don't mean adventure in the term of wasteful jollies with a hit of a, adrenaline. Sure. I, I, I kind of think true romance and meaningful adventure has more to do with pursuing the part of your heart that involves great risk. Like there's something at stake as you're stepping forward into, into what you find to be your path. Sometimes I think that that path is like handed to you. We've talked to guests in the past. It's like, here it is. And they're on the precipice of like, do I do this or do I not do this? We've talked to both camps, like yeah. here it is in front of me. And I screwed up royally because of some issue in my life. Here it is in front of me. And oh my gosh, like, I can't believe that I get this opportunity. I'm going to jump on it. 14 years old, you have a 12-year-old brother. You suddenly find yourself in China. Where were you in China? How did you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How did I mean, you... that's a whole story on its own. But yeah, you know, we were we landed in Beijing. We didn't know where we were going to stay. We didn't. All I had was an envelope of about $2,000, and that was going to last us for six weeks or for a month and a half. This was for the conference? This was for the conference, yeah. About 40000 So. We land and um, and thankfully there were some there was a couple Baha'is and a couple groups that we could you know interact with and so on. When you're 14 though, you kind of think that you're a invincible and two are old enough to do anything. Like you're bummed yeah. that you can't drive yeah. yet and all that kind of stuff. So I, I have think, a 14 year old son. I guess. <laughs> yeah, mentally, I think I thought I was a lot. You know, now I look at 14 year olds and I'm like, mom, like that's bordering <laughs> on child abuse. Like I don't know what you were thinking, but uh, so thankful for her adventurous spirit because you know when she was. 19 she moved to the canary islands and lived in a cave for six months and you know then traveled around europe and i mean so she clearly had that type of uh um you know thought pattern and 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 upbringing that she released that into us one of the other things that's come up for us and i'm sorry to interrupt but i want i want to ask you about this particular in this part of your story is is the lack of initiation in the western culture for for all for both men and women and the kinds of things that happen to us that inform us that we have arrived in a place of self-sufficiency. The old, the old language would be to say, now I'm a man, now I'm a woman. Yeah. Did you have any kind of sense that that, that was going on at the time? Or can you look back on it now and go, oh my gosh, like I like that was a, a, a block in the foundation of my initiation? I would say that um, I've seen some pros and some cons to 
to what happened with me growing up. Part of it is, is that I individualized very early because I had a, a gnarly stepdad. I had a biological dad that left when I was three. I had a mom who was, was sick, manic depressive bipolar. Um, so I had an unstable household okay. uh, that had lots of kids and foster kids even living in our house. I mean, it was just a, a, a you know, Jerry Springer type scenario. Um, that, that forced me to, uh, grow up and take care of myself probably a lot more early than I should have. Um, and there are some things that I lost in that I'm sure, uh, there's some childhood type things that I'm still probably attachment and so on that I'm still working through with my own therapist now. Um, but the things that it did give me was absolutely, there is an incredible sense of, of, that kind of coming into your own, that independence, that trying things and taking risks. There was no other option but to yeah. to take risks and to to do that. And so, um, and it's it's definitely shaped my narrative that I believe there are a lot more green lights than red lights. So mm-hmm. I am a like step into things unless it's a deep red light. Even a yellow is like you can run it. You know what I mean? Like there's there's it. So I am probably and that probably comes from my childhood. I'm kind of a let's go forward, let's make mistakes. I think I was also given a lot of opportunity to make mistakes from incredible mentors and people that, you know, are just like, just fall, but just fall forward. Like don't fall backwards, fall forwards and, and we'll pick you up and dust you off and set you loose. And so, uh, I mean, to answer your question, yeah, I think I definitely came into whatever that language you would want to use early. Um, some of it being very beneficial because I think we probably stunt people too much. We don't let people, release we hold people back a lot and just not thinking they're ready um and so i'm very thankful for the opportunity to go to china i don't know if i would have chose it for my own kids at 14 um that being and but you know what we're both here my brother and i are still alive and so i can look back and go that was a very shaping environment that i'm thankful for mm-hmm. well wow, that's fascinating well okay so that, so you, you did that at 14 um, did you leave with any kind of resentment for that experience? Like, were you mad at that or, or did you kind of go back to Canada feeling like, no, there was no part. And part of that could be my personality around at no part. Did I feel unsafe or did I feel, you know, uh, push? I mean, I just felt like I was on this grand adventure to use your language, you know, and my brother got huge culture shock and he kind of stayed in the house slash little hotel thing for weeks on end, you know, and, uh, and that definitely kind of messed him up a little bit in the beginning wild enough though, he moved to China and lived there for like nine years later. So, I mean, clearly it didn't mess him up that bad, but he actually, that's where he chose to go. But that's so interesting. Yeah. Okay. So then you, you go back, you're about high face informing a lot of what it sounds like the, the lenses through which we view reality and, and then you end up working at one of the biggest national chains in Canada, right? It- yeah, I, I mean, so I went on a, you know, I, I ducked out of uh, my house at 17. So when I graduated, I graduated early, 17, and I moved out right away. Again, kind of a abusive, gnarly kind of okay. uh, stepdad and, and uh, to not myself, but to others in our family. It just, I just wanted to get out. And I moved to the big city in Canada. It was Calgary. I was from a little, small little ski town, moved to Calgary. I actually got a job at a clothing store just because I needed to, you know, pay rent. And uh, the manager got caught stealing from the safe my first week there. And so the owners came in and were talking with all the staff and uh, they sat me down and I literally like four days into the job. And at the end of it, they said, and I was 17 and they said, Hey, um, we need to find a new manager for the store. Could you run the store for a month while we do a search? And I remember going like, guys, 
I've been here four days. I'm 17. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. And they said, well, as long as you're not stealing from the safe, you'll be doing better than the last guy. And we know that you're not because you've only been here for four days. So you're the only person we can really trust right now. Don't worry. We'll find somebody and bail you out, but give us a month. In that month, I ended up firing every single person that worked there because they were all stealing. That was that, that ended up being true. I had to hire all new people, which means I had to learn how to fire and hire people on my own with no, you know, so I made a lot of mistakes uh, and learned from those mistakes. I had to open the store and close it every single day for a week while I was searching for people. Um, and at the end of the month, the theft was down, the sales were up, and they ended up saying, hey, do you want to manage the store for good? And at that time, at 17, I thought I struck the lottery. You know, they're like, yeah. we'll give you 45 grand a year and a car. And I'm just like, I've made it. I'm not going to college. Forget it. I'm doing this is it. But a year and a half in realized I don't want to work in a mall for the rest of my life. And not that there's anything wrong with that. But for me, that wasn't like the calling on my life. And I could feel that it was a great learning for a year and a half to learn how to manage and lead people and make all those mistakes underneath somebody else's dime, so to speak. But um, I ended up quitting. I went to Turkey uh, for kind of a find myself trip. I needed to like kind of figure out who am I? What am I going to do? I didn't have a dad that was helping shape some of that thought. My mom and Mai's attachment was was weak at that point for sure. And so um, went to Turkey. I ended up meeting, uh, uh, this is where my faith paradigm started to switch. I met a guy from Australia who was underneath kind of this Jesus paradigm. And he ended up sharing me some things about Jesus that ended up changing, you know, my outlook on, on kind of... Why did you go to Turkey? Well, so my mom, my mom and my family wanted to go, um, and they were going on this trip, and they said, do you want to come? And I ended up being like, you know what? I'll go. Uh, it, yeah. it was a weird family trip because we didn't really hang out together. We, like, would go to the places, but then we'd all just kind of bifurcate and split and do our own thing. And so... Why yeah. was that Australian guy in Turkey? He was like a missionary. He was just like, I'm going to go talk to Muslims about Jesus. And he met some Baha'i kid, you know, in a, (laughs) in a cave in Cappadocia. And so, um, uh, the reason reason I ask is, um, my main new Testament, uh, professor, uh, has been living there for 20 years doing archeological studies and, and and I know there's, there's a lot of Bible history, early first century. There's tons. Yeah. 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 Interesting. there's tons of, I mean, Cappadocia, uh, I mean, well, just Istanbul alone is Constantinople, you know? So you think of like the center of the, you know, world yeah. and not only just the Christian world, but the world at large at that point, yeah. uh, is, is Istanbul. So yeah, there's a lot of history. Also my stepdad who was, was there at the time, uh, is a total grail nut, like Indiana Jones type, <laughs> like bizarre, like up in the middle, 2 a.m., like drawing. So he believed, this is, I found this out later. This is why they went to Turkey. They're they're not together anymore, but they went to Turkey because he believed that the grail was under one of the pillars at the Hagia Sophia, which is uh, one of the mosques there. And it's the mosque that the church of Constantinople was was at. And they believed that the grail, he believed the grail would have been at Constantinople. And when they were getting taken over by the Turks, they would have hid it in this. So anyways, he had this whole theory and he was, I don't know. That's why they went to Turkey. Did he try to dig it up? Did he like get caught? (laughs) He didn't. And, and I always, I've, I've funny. I've wondered that, like, what was your plan, man? Like, were you kind of like, you know, oceans 11 dig underneath the the pillar or whatever, but. I saw that scene in Indiana Jones where he's got like the big rock and then he's like timing it with the. the Yeah. The switch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Great. So, 
Uh, you and I have talked about a favorite author of ours, uh, Paulo Coelho. Am I yeah. saying his name right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I grew up saying Paulo Coelho, but I think I was okay. a 15-year-old <laughs> kid reading it, so I don't know. What were you when you read The Alchemist? And then tell me what that, how, you know, kind of the, the next things that happened to you around that book. Yeah, I think I was 15. Um, and it was a... I think it was the first novel-esque type book that I read that felt like it was speaking to my soul about a faith journey. Interesting. And, and I, you know, I feel like you either are reading these sacred texts that are often conscribed as rule books or whatever. Yeah. And so they're not really sexy or fun to read necessarily. I mean, the Bible is wild and so is the Quran. They're all wild books when you read yeah. them, but they're hard to really follow. It's like reading Shakespeare in a lot of ways, at least for a 15-year-old. Yeah. I felt like The Alchemist led me on a faith journey that was like one that I could, it was like watching a movie I could understand. And this idea of, you know, finding your personal legend. And like, I'm like, I want one of those. Like, yeah. do we all get one of the, like, I want, you know, um, and, and I want to have that guiding star that I'm kind of, you know, cha- I don't think I had that stability growing up. And so it felt like stability to me. This idea that, you know, to, to and that there's going to, it's not just me doing it, that there's going to be guiding forces and signs and the universe and the world is going to, you know, be a part of this shaping story was just like, yeah, this is, this is the greatest adventure that I get to go on for the rest of my life. And I think the part that hit me was, and it's been a while since I've read it, but the part that hit me is that like the treasure was back where he started. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that also resonated. Like, I don't want to lose sight of the present and where I'm at. And I know that I may have to go on this journey to even get back to where I am. Marriage is in my mind is a lot like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like I have to go through this journey to, to come back to the first love of my wife. And yeah, it's an interesting, but like, I've had these moments of coming back and just being like, Oh my gosh, like it was here all along, all that longing, all those things that I tried to buy to make myself feel better. All those restaurants, I, like it all actually is about, you know, this relationship and this attachment. So, yeah. Interesting. So you had, uh, how old were you when you wrote to Paolo? It was right after that book. And so I read that book and I, I think this, again, this is like the whimsy of like a 14 or 15 year old. You just assume everyone's going to reply. Like you don't know about fame or importance or any of that. Like everybody's attainable and reachable, at least in my mind growing up. And so I just wrote him a letter and I was just like, this book has impacted me so much. I just want to thank you. Um, like with no desire of a reply, just to like kind of affirm him and yeah. saying, and, and he wrote me back. It was amazing. Uh, and, and that really stuck with me. That's stuck with me today. Um, even when it comes to reaching out and affirming people out of the blue and just making that be a part of, um, that's part of my actual personal legend is to actually be that if, if, if all of a sudden I disappeared from this earth, would, would I be missed and not from an egocentric side of things, but like, does anything that I'm doing really matter? And it's not my job. And yes, my wife would miss me, of course. Um, you know, uh, but what, what would be the ripple effects that would be missing? And, and for me, that's come actually from that letter, because I feel like I, and meant to be one of those encouragers. And I don't need to be the number one. I don't need to be in the limelight. I just need to be someone who's affirming and encouraging others for sure. Ronald talks about that, about making the importance of making oneself available, you know, yes. regardless of status or level of success, you know. Um, and I, I find that 
so you have at any point in time, each of us has the potential and the power to make someone's day by being available. Maybe it's us reaching out and finding ways to actually do that when you're not getting written fan letters, you know? Yeah. Um, maybe you are, you are available. But I'm not, but yeah. <laughs> All right, you know, yeah. Ron, Ron writes me every now and then, but that's about it. Do you remember what he said in that letter? Yeah. He, he actually said, um, you know, basically like the fact that you took the time to write me this letter and encourage me, I will keep this letter. It means the world to me. You know, it was just very like, like it, it, he didn't, it wasn't like a kid was writing me. It was just like, it really touched him. You could tell that it really touched him. And I think that's also the thing that changed for me is to realize while words matter, it wasn't a 10 page letter. It was like a four sentence letter and four sentences can change someone's life. Four your sentences your letter or his? Mine. Both. Both were short. They were both short. <laughs> Mine was pretty short and his was pretty short. Um, most of it's probably because I just, I'm not a big typer. So <laughs> a writer, you know, as you're talking, I, I, I think um, I kind of have you to blame for, I, I, I hadn't thought about it, but I, but I have made a practice, you know, let's say the last 10 years, which is probably about the time I met you, of, of noticing when someone has an impact on me, and even if they're a stranger, and trying my hardest to let them know, in, even in a small way, the positive yeah. influence they've had yeah. in my life. Yeah. And, um, and you yeah. do that really well. Oh, Ron. thanks, man. You do. Um, well, you did it right really well. And, you know, I got it through osmosis. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. He and I had coffee a few years ago. And I remember I was like, it was either my like second reading of The Alchemist. And I, and I had, I had no idea about any of this stuff with you. And, we were uh, meeting, actually, this is kind of an in- interesting coincidence. We were meeting at a Moroccan um, coffee house, yeah. which the story takes place, part of the story takes place in Morocco. Mm. And, and so I'm like, hey, have you read, you know, I'm reading this book. It's like changing my life again. Have you read The Alchemist? And he's like, he like reaches in his j- jacket, <laughs> like pulls out a copy. Really? <laughs> There's a letter from Paul Coelho. Yeah, right. <laughs> You're like, okay. He's my dad. I mean, I don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's rad. So that so you went from retail, the retail world. Yeah. So I go to Turkey. I, you know, the first, you know, Baha'is pray, um, but they. I was taught to pray out of a prayer book. And so there's a book of written prayers, like your daily prayer, yeah. your obligatory, whatever. Uh, in Turkey, I, I felt like I was, and I don't know where everyone sits on the faith spectrum, but it doesn't really matter. For me, I was for the first time actually kind of crying out to the creator, you know, going like, man, I just don't know what to do with my life. I need some direction. And um, when I came back to uh, Canada, I got a job at a restaurant uh, called Joey's that was um, just had two restaurants, I think, at that point open. Uh, And the GM, Lane, uh, who hired me, became that answered prayer. I mean, he was the father figure um, or at least mentor uh, figure that I really needed and was uh, the most honest and humble and just like light years ahead in my mind. Uh, and all of a sudden I had somebody that was helping guide me down that path to finding that, that personal, uh, legend, you know, and, um, 
and that was the first I, I feel like in my whole life that I really had that kind of uh, person. And so I ended up giving my life to the restaurant for a number of years, um, ended up opening up restaurants all over Canada and then came down to the States as part of the team that bought Kachina Kachina, which is a restaurant chain down here. And that's what brought me down to Portland was, was the restaurant industry. So. Which is the, no one knows. I mean, Portland for a minute there was kind of one of the nebulous or not nebulous, one of the like, you know, cores of the West coast food scene. And totally. What, yeah. year, what year is this? I came down in 2004. So 16, 16 years ago. Yep. Yeah. So what took you, I, I think a lot of people come to Portland for the food scene and they stay in Portland for the food scene. You can, people uh, can make great careers here. It's, yeah. it's one of those places where, we have insane quality, insane uh, creativity, insane, like, you know, my wife's birthday was two days ago. Restaurants were closed. I got takeout from a, a like a little French bistro down the street and like heated it up at home, plated everything. And, and we're eating this food during her birthday. I was like, where else can I do this? Like, I don't know many towns in America where you can find like world-class and amazing yeah. food they can just go grab like down the street. Anyway, I, that's my love letter to Portland. Like <laughs> I hope the food scene doesn't leave, but I say all that to say, you could have stayed really comfortable in that world here in Portland. I could have. Yeah. And, and no one would have cared. Everyone would have celebrated you and thought like, that's exactly what you should do. What changed? Yeah. So, I mean, I, at the time, a bunch of things and, and, um, one is I was actually engaged when I moved down here. Um, and I took over this, I, you know, bought, was part of buying this restaurant, took over this restaurant and, um, it was hard. It was hard work. Uh, the engagement ended up breaking off and I kind of went into a tailspin of just identity and like, what am I doing? I'm not at this really fun, sexy restaurant that everyone knows who we are up in Canada. I'm now like getting ready to transform this restaurant, but it's still just a mess. My engagement broke off and, and that was really hard. And I just started going in this, this tailspin and, um, I was attending a church. I was part of this community down here, a Magaday community. Um, and, uh, Lane, my mentor, who's still my mentor today, Lane, my mentor said, buddy, you need a win. Like, I don't care what it is, but like you are spinning like this. You need a win, whether it's in the restaurant, whether it's in your personal life, whether it's in your faith and he's not a Christian. So, and he's like, whether it's at church or your faith, I don't care what it is, but you need to get a win. And at the time I felt like uh, my church community was the easiest place to get a win. So I started investing in um, just community groups there. And uh, what's amazing is, is when that part of my life started to go up, everything else started to actually follow suit. The restaurant started getting better. My personal life started getting better. And so I don't think it was the church necessarily was the silver bullet. And I wouldn't just tell people pick church. I think, but I do think that finding something that you can sink your teeth into and actually get some wins yeah. is an important part of, of that journey that I, that I was going on. Through that, though, I decided that I'm like, man, I think it's time just to leave the restaurant and I just want to figure out how to serve this community um, as best I can. And that's a huge shift. And financially, it was a huge shift because you're going from making like 250 grand a year to making 30 grand at a church or 25 grand at a church. And so you're making you're making actual real decisions. But at that point, I didn't have any I wasn't getting married. I didn't have any, like, I didn't have anything I needed to really save for at that point. I always felt like I could restart and and do something. So 
I ended up leaving everything and serving uh, the church. And I ended up working in kind of that church and then the nonprofit world um, for the next 14 years, um, you know, and still to this day uh, and, and involved in it. Quick question. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned your personal legend a few times, and it sounds like maybe you know how to phrase what that is. Um, I'm curious, first of all, curious what, what it is and how you describe it. And also at what point in time in your journey, you were able to actually describe it in a clear way. Hmm. I think I probably have used that language, um, along my life, just because of, uh, the early framing from, from Paulo, from the alchemist. And so that's helped frame it. Um, and then for me, it's, it's about, that intuition, that listening, am I listening or am I just driving? Uh, it's very easy in, in our consumeristic kind of um, North American culture that I, I'm a part of. And I will have moments where I feel like I'm just driving towards something versus really taking it in, taking a beat and listening. Um, and so to me, uh, when you take time to listen, that personal legend, which to me is that, um, where is it when like all the, the energy just like all of a sudden like sinks up or like when that, you know, um, that note just like all of a sudden on a piano, like makes sense. It's like, everything's kind of singing in the right direction. And, and that, I don't think it's a, uh, I don't think it's a one thing. I'm, I'm not a, like, it's this, like, if you just had this job or if you were just yeah. doing this, I don't think it's that. I think it's when, uh, for me, my personal edge is when I'm at harmony with, with, for me, it's with God or creator or whoever and others. And so am I living a life that, um, is in harmony with both of those things? And they're both really important to me. So, uh, and I can definitely tell you when I'm, I'm not in harmony with either of those, or maybe one of those, uh, more than the other. And so, um, Currently, I'm in a place where I feel like I'm in harmony with both. But if you'd asked me, you know, maybe a year ago, I might have said something different. And any time that I'm not, I, I want to take some time to readjust. And that might be time with, with my wife to kind of go, okay, how, where are we at? How are we doing? What are you seeing in my life? Are you seeing areas that, you know, so I bring other people into that personal legend for sure. That sounds like as opposed to I had a little image go through my head. Like if I'm a song player, uh, if I sing songs and I play guitar, it's not as important to you what the song is as the guitar is in tune. Yeah. It sounds like kind of, That's, it, it, that can come, that can yeah. create many different looks. That's my that's my take on it. I'm sure there's others that have other takes. Um, my personal take is that I, I think there's about a hundred things that I could actually do with my yeah. life that would all sing true to the personal legend. Mm -hmm. I actually do. I don't think it's that I'm at this job right now. And but so I think there's a lot of options. I think that, that there's tons. Um, it's just making sure that we're in tune along the way. Yeah. Yeah. That seems, that seems right. I, I find that in my own life to be correct. I've seen it in others where it was like, if you're, if you're in tune, the chord changes are right. If we're going to stick to the music metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you have kind of the musicality to your pacing, like things happen. And I think the other important quality of that is, you know, you at a young age learned how to work hard. You were, you were given a lot of, responsibility even though you were yes. like whoa i don't know if i should do this but then you proved yourself worthy of your hire using some biblical language 
And that sounds like you've not mentioned that, but that, but you wouldn't have had those jobs. You wouldn't have been flown down to Portland <laughs> and given the opportunity to do that if you weren't a hard worker. And I, I just got off. Uh, I just was listening to an interview with um, Seinfeld, who has an insane work ethic. Yeah. Like I was so surprised how much work he puts in to this day and how he's really trying to give that to his kids. And I think that's something you, like, if you don't know, you know, if we see somebody who makes something look really easy, we think it's easy. And, yeah. and we think that playing guitar is easy. We think that playing piano and singing is easy. Nope. Turns out they're very hard. And I think sometimes our success can look easy because we're in a flow state and sometimes it feels easy, but I also know that you've ground, you know, you, you've grinded, you put a lot of hustle in there. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, uh, you know, the, the saying, like, if you talk to an entrepreneur, you know, about their one success, they'll also tell you about their nine failures, you know, and it, it doesn't come without you. In my mind, there's very few times that you become successful without going through a ton of failures. And, and I can count mine. My marriage that is successful right now is, has been a, a you know, a history of fails on, on often my part, you know, and I'm only becoming a better version of myself because of, going through those, those moments and then choosing commitment each time to go, we're going to get through this. We're going to work through this. I'm going to adjust and change. And so, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I I'm with you, Ron. I think that, um, I, all of that has been learned through making a lot of mistakes and, and thankfully having people around me that allow me to make those mistakes. I think that's one of the biggest gifts you can give anybody, whether it's your spouse, your kids, your friends, your, you know, staff, your whoever is giving them the freedom to make mistakes and that the mistakes aren't going to define them. Um, and we're so quick to define people by their mistakes and as opposed to define them by what they do outside of those mistakes. So interesting. Or, or after those mistakes. After, yeah, absolutely. You know, hmm. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I want to ask you some more details about what you kind of some more of the adventures overseas that you're into, but I, I don't want to leave too soon on, on, um, the power of asking for help, yeah. which you might have said was prayer. Uh, I know in my own life at 13 years old, I grew up in a, in a Christian culture, the evangelical culture. Everyone has a lot of experiences and judgments over those things. I'm, you know, you're, you're allowed to have those things. If you found hurt there, then, then seek help. Uh, one of those things it taught me, one of the values that taught me was that I could actually ask the God that I ha had an understanding of for help. Yeah. And, the first time I really decided to do that was when I was about 13. I think it was some number of times I hadn't heard from my dad in years. Like that was the cycle of him as he'd be around in a pa passage of years. He wasn't around passage of years. At the time I had a stepdad who was really kind to me, uh, but wasn't living in an alignment with himself. Um, and and so he was super distant. Like he just like was a, a person there and would like make sure I got to school on time, those things, but like just shut off, just totally shut off. And, and I remember having real, a, a period of time in my life, 13 years old, unable to sleep for weeks. Mm. I just would like stay up all night worrying about what I was going to how, how I was going to take care of myself. Yeah. And one night in desperation, I called out to God for help. And I was like, I need a dad. I actually said that I need a dad yeah. and I need, and I, and something inside me said, I think you can do that. God, like, I think you can do that role for me. 
and not more than what seemed like an instant to me was I uh, somewhere where this this like uh, actual like cowboy appeared in my life. And he's like, hey, I run a rodeo every Friday night. I need cow hands. You know, can you come work for me? And I mean, he literally just needed a body to like open a gate and let cows run through. And and I don't think to this day, that's my favorite job. That's my favorite job I've ever (laughs) paid money to do was to move cows around arenas. And and he paid us really well. He you know, he trusts he gave us like you and your story gave us unbelievable responsibility. You know, at 13 years old, he's throwing me the keys to his dually Dodge pickup with a 32 foot trailer full of steer. He's like, you need to back that up. And like, you know, and so you learn quick, like, oh, I've got to do this. Then you're in charge of the living, these living animals. He pays a lot of money. Then he take us to breakfast and, you know, like two in the morning at Denny's. And I thought this is the best thing I could ever do. Like, there's not a better job ever. And, and I still count that as like one of the pivotal moments in my life where, some door opened for me when I asked for help. Yeah. And, and I think that's, if you've not had that experience of asking for help to the God in the universe, like it's an exciting moment. And especially if you're, if you're going to look, you know, cause we, we can ask, I think we we're talking about a book yesterday called dove, which was uh, have you read that book? I haven't read it yet. No. Do you know what it is? I know what it is. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, he has a moment like that where he, where his boat's capsizing, he's all alone. Yeah. He, he calls out for help and, and, you know, he survives and he changed his life. So I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to say like, you've got to put yourself in service to God or the church afterwards. I think that's an easy like promise to make when you're desperate, (laughs) like I'll do anything, (laughs) but there, but uh, it's an interesting thing. All right. Um, so you, you go into church, another side detail, my wife at that time in history had become a single mom, totally alone, totally desperate reads a book and in by uh, a Christian writer. She wasn't, a, she wouldn't have called herself that. And she's like, Hmm, this is pretty good. Uh, Oh, this guy's from Portland. I wonder what church he goes to. And she like scours the book, finds it. It's the church you went to. Yeah. So she shows up as a, as a, you know, former bombshell, blonde bombshell. It's now single mom. Right. And is like, what am I doing here? But I, I feel compelled to be here. And I feel compelled to really dedicate my son to God, to just offer him as a gift to God. And, um, and so asked the church to pray over him. And it turns out that Mr. Mike McDonald was the guy who prayed over my son when my son was like three, four months old. Or before you'd even met him. It took years for us to put this all together. Oh, wow. Do you remember that? <laughs> I you know what's I don't I mean I I remember doing those things at the church um and yeah. and I you know remember those moments but I definitely wouldn't have been able to like yeah. it's not like when I saw you know Morgan I was like oh my gosh you're you that gal <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah 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 um uh, but in the yeah I remember when we pieced it together how just absolutely crazy and wild that was and it's really the same way you know I went to that church as well was was because of Dawn um I was mentoring a kid I didn't read the book but I was mentoring this kid that uh, that did, and it really impacted him. And so when I moved to Portland, it was just shortly after that. Um, that's how I kind of landed at Imago as well. And then Don and I became friends and started a small group together and, um, you know, continued on that, that journey. Referencing a book called blue like jazz. And, uh, the author's name is Donald Miller. Um, kind of a well-known author. Blue like jazz. Yeah. Yeah. 
Interesting. Okay. So then you go from kind of your neighborhood church to suddenly finding yourself, well, not suddenly, but finding yourself overseas doing some interesting things. Tell us about that. Yeah. So uh, through that kind of time, I ended up meeting my wife and, um, and my kind of future boss, uh, John Mark, um, at a party. Cause a buddy of mine, Steve Offerman, who's from Canada was uh, dating Rebecca. John, this is a long, lots of, doesn't matter. I was at a party. I met my future wife and, and my future boss all in the same night. So it was a very, very big night. Go to those when you, when you are supposed to, that was another probably moment where I actually didn't want to go. I was actually pretty tired, but there was something in me and I don't know how to explain it, but there was something in me that was just like, you just need to go to this place, like go to this party. I was like, okay, I'll go. Um, and, uh, dated my wife for three months and then we were engaged for three months and, and married. So it was a, it was clearly a very impactful, uh, um, party. Um, but through that, I ended up taking a job at a newly formed church out in Beaverton called Solid Rock. And um, at that church, they had me um, doing small groups, but then also something called Hear the Cry, which was our global, local. They had just get, we're just starting to get this underway. And um, so that had me kind of traveling and, and you know, doing things in, in other countries. Along that process, I met this guy, Bob Goff, who um, also was starting to do work in other countries, Uganda and others. And we just started traveling together to do as many of these projects uh, and, and relationship building um, as we could. And it's brought me to, like Ron said, you know, all over. Yeah, Uganda, Somalia, Iraq, Afghanistan, um, Myanmar, Cambodia, all over the place. What's unique, what, I, what I've appreciated about it is that it it was never a, a ministry or a um, a thing that was about us going and solving these problems over in other countries. That I learned that very on uh, uh, even in China that that just isn't the route to to go. We've got so much to learn. We've got so much to to take on, and so we would go to learn from and be a part of local indigenous leaders in each of these countries and just meant to be an encouragement kind of like that original you know uh personal legend can i show up to these places and be some wind in their sails to do what they're already passionate about doing not to come in and teach something but to come in and actually just be an encouragement whether that is financially but it could just be sitting down in somebody's living room and going you're not alone in Iraq, you know, in the middle of nowhere, trying to do this work around refugee care, because ISIS just took over, you know, and all these refugees are pouring into Kurdistan. And you've got the mayor of Kurdistan, who up in the northern part, um, in Saran, who's just beside himself going, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And, and, you know, for me, the personal legend was you show up and you go to that guy's living room, and you sit and have some tea and go, you're not alone. Like, we've got this, like, what do you need? Like, that's what friends do. And, and that's how we built friendships in a lot of these, um, a lot of these countries. That's amazing. And I know that, that, you you know, I'm sure that that vibration, that like drum beat is still echoing because there's, I know in Portland, you know, we participated in refugee care. That was a direct result from small conversation. I'm sure it just started with like an introduction to a person you don't know what's going to turn out. And then, so, you know, fast forward some years playing a tape. And then my family and I are buying furniture, groceries, putting things together with other families. And boom, we have a house in a box for a family who has nothing coming from yeah. some other country. And, and now they've landed on their feet. And, and my favorite part about that is there's no, um, there's not, we're not asking anything in return from them. Like, yeah 
welcome welcome to america <laughs> yeah yeah really Not a bait and switch yeah 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 so ronald was saying that you and I'm, you so you help refugees that's still what you do uh, uh what uh, here in portland only away where can you flesh that out a little yeah closer? yeah and actually so i now i work at an animation studio that's making cartoons for the internet uh right now but um uh, that said, that's my, my job. Um, but yes, when it comes to refugees, we were doing that the, the whole way that we did any of our work with Hear the Cry was everything we did globally, we were also going to do locally. Yeah. We didn't want to have this idea that you're going to go to some sort of like ministry camp for a week in Zimbabwe and then come back. And that's, you have this hilltop experience. My heart was, is when it comes to, and to use a church term a little bit is discipleship is that if, if you're going to be an apprentice and, and you want to care for refugees and you fly over to Iraq, you should be doing that here in your own city. If it's something that you truly are like about, then whether you're doing it to your na- with your neighbor or whether you're doing it in Iraq, like that's, it's the same, same thing. Yes. And so we always wanted people to go, if it was orphan care, then they would come back and work within the foster care system here in Portland. If it was sex trafficking work, they would come back and actually work in anti-sex trafficking work here in Portland. And so it was this circular thing that it's like, it's not that one is more important than the other. It's that we're this large humanity uh, that, you know, is broken and hurting and we need to, you know, be a part of, of, you know, hope, hopefully bringing some light into those areas, whether globally or locally. What did helping refugees or whatever you were doing abroad look like locally? Well, locally, so, I mean, Portland at the time, uh, we would get about 1,500 refugees into Portland. Portland was one of those gateway cities um, where, and and you get certain types of demographics. The way that the it works is they want to keep people together as much as possible for their own health and, and, and growth. So we would, you know, get quite a few from the Congo. We'd get quite a few from Afghanistan. We'd get a number from Iraq, Kurdistan. And so you'd see these larger communities, um, start to build up in, in Portland. And, uh, you know, one of the things that happens is, is that they really get about nine months of help when they come, uh, when it comes to like that financial startup. And so they come into Portland, you can imagine a family coming family of often five, eight, nine people. And they've got 800 bucks a month that they're getting supplied from the government. And, and they got to figure out how to make that work. They have no idea what, how to run the bus system. They have no idea what grocery shopping looks like. They have no idea, you know, and so. Are they speaking the language? Uh, you're not, but sometimes they would have translators that would be able to come by. Uh, the kids are often pretty darn good at, at English and learning English. So often the kid ends up being a little bit of a translator for, for the adults, but it looks like, like Ron said, I mean, it looks like from some of it, it was picking people up from the airport. So we're their first view. Like you're not alone. You're you, like, we're, we've got you and we're not just going to drop you at some random place. We're going to be with you for as long as it takes for you to understand. And, and hopefully it just builds a friendship that lasts forever. But we would take people to the supermarket and teach them how to use gift cards or food stamps or all the things that you just you know, t- teaching them not to, when Comcast comes to your door and tells you, you need to get cable, you don't need to get cable. Don't sign anything, you know, like the simple things that me and you would know, they just have no, no idea. And so it was often just helping bring them into, um, our, our you know, where their, their new home. 
So. And do you have lasting friendships with some of these people and families? I d- absolutely. Yeah, I do. I've got some, you know, some friends that I would consider extremely close. What's amazing is a an Iraqi refugee that moved to the States and, and you know, moved into Portland later on would come to Iraq with me. I would fly him with me on my trips so that he could go back and serve refugees from his own uh, area and he would act as a translator so it was this beautiful like synergy but he yeah. would come as a translator but then got to serve all of these people and so yeah that friendship is i mean forever that'll be a you know and him him and his family are, are dear dear friends so wow that's amazing man yeah it's very wow. cool um you mentioned earlier some of the dark times in your life that that have helped springboard you into just doubling down on the effort it takes to keep things going in your marriage in particular. Um, The the reason I ask is, is I've now found that I want to kind of collect and remember my dark times because Mm -hmm. of the way that they've actually served me. Like they've given me the gift of, of helping me redirect where I need to be. And, and so I, like, I look at them, there's a, I, I don't know if there's any truth to this, but the but there's kind of a myth around the staff of Moses, and the myth is part of the reason he was told to hold it up was because that they would write all of their milestones in their life through like some kind of hieroglyphic or symbology mm. on their staff. Dang. I don't know if there's any truth to that, but but the idea is is I'm holding it up, remembering all the yeah. hard things oh, I've been through. Beautiful, yeah. So looking back on your life, like what are some, uh, you know, one or two hard things and you can get into whatever detail you want to get into, but that's like, man, I actually really needed that. Oh man. I mean, gosh, yeah. You pick a, pick a year and I've probably got uh, a handful. 2007. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Um, You know, though, I mean, the ones that stick the most uh, for sure. I mean, I, I've failed in my marriage a handful of times and, um, uh, you know, probably the biggest one that pushed against some, some parts of me that I never addressed, you know, where I, uh, you know, made choices that were very egocentric, um, as opposed to, uh, for my spouse, for Melissa and, um, and didn't even realize I was doing it. I think that's where the biggest pain came is that it's not, it wasn't a choice where I'm like, oh, I'm going to hurt Melissa today and do this thing. It was that I made this choice, um, that, that had such, and I should have seen it, but I had these like horse blinders on that all I cared about was the, the end, uh, you know, what I was going to get out of this thing that I was doing and couldn't see the impact that it was going to have the very deep impact that led me down a path, um, through therapy, through things like the Enneagram and other things that I don't think it's the silver bullet, but there's helpful tools out there to know yourself better because I was so independent as a, as a young kid. And I learned that I can only trust myself, you know, through my family. Like that was really the biggest, you know, like you say about asking for help. I didn't learn that until way later in life. And I never asked for help when I was younger. Cause I knew that it wouldn't, wouldn't do anything, at least in my mind, that's the way that I felt. And so I had to learn that skill a lot later, which was painful because now being married to somebody and I don't ask my wife for help, uh, is painful because, um, she doesn't get to live into the joy of getting to, to, to help her spouse. Now, I get to help her because she asks for help, but I don't give that same gift to her by being vulnerable. And, and, and so 
I think my conflict uh, with Melissa definitely opened up the doors of vulnerability to go, wow, there's some things I really need to look at. There's uh, there are some things that um, are not okay. And, and so, and then I need to dive into some, some deep work uh, in that. And so that's changed. I mean, that's changed me, not just for my marriage, but for everybody. Um, you know, I would say it was one of the more humbling moments that I don't want to get to a place where my true self and my outward focus self are so separated anymore. I think that's what was happening too, is, you know, you, you start putting on these masks and these front facing, whether it's with Instagram or Facebook or any of these things. And my true self and my, my front facing self became separate. Sorry. No, go ahead. That's an interesting uh, way to put that. I, I, I really am a proponent of, well, one of the lenses through which I look and reflect on my own life and therefore look at others um, is Jungian psychology. Mm. One of the things that he talks about uh, is a process called individuation. Yeah. And there's some really beautiful, it sounds like you've both heard of it. There's some really beautiful, uh, about 10 minute YouTube videos that describe it. And then he has a book that, you know, is obviously goes much deeper. Yeah. That's it is, is your, your like, you you called it your true self. I say inner self. Yeah. And then your outward self or your personas, this is all union language. Yeah. You know, um, that, that the process of individuation, which is essentially the process of authentic, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, living an authentic whole self, you know? Yeah. He says it's cutting that gap down lower and lower and having your inner world be reflected in your outer world, you know, and your outer world support your inner world. Absolutely. And that's, I think that's even that harmony that I was talking about earlier, because that's way more harmonious. Like, and what's scary is the further and further this gets, this will crack at some point, but the fall gets pretty big. And that's, I think, where you start seeing people start choosing other coping mechanisms to, to fill this, you know, fall that just happened. It's where you see like artists. I I think artists are some of the ones that feel it the most because they put out bands and musicians. It sounds like you are, you know, you can put out this, this who I am, but if it starts to separate so far, man, that crash is so deep. And I, I worry about that with our Instagram and everything else culture that we're in, where we put on. What's crazy too, is that we only compare ourselves with people that are further ahead we never compare ourselves with people that maybe aren't aren't where we're at or if we do with like harsh criticism yeah because arrogant yeah totally totally so we're we're in a uh, we're in a dangerous spot in a lot of ways um but if anything uh, hopefully you know the cracking can help bring back unity and bring back shalom you know in a biblical word you know that that peace that harmony um and so but it's always been through big breakings that's brought me to harmonious places for sure. I've never, I've never been like here and been like, you know, I think I need to get back to my true self. I'll be honest. It's often yeah. crap <laughs> that pushes me back yeah, uh, into that space. So that's amazing. Um, I think conversations like this, where there's just a w- awareness around it, um, three men either practicing articulation around it or building articulation around it, which is where I am, you know, huge, huge um positive you know maybe it's not helping a refugee at this stage but it's at least building values around it and some words around it you know 
Absolutely. And I honestly, the credit for me is my wife. She's a therapist. And so I, I, this is my lucky. Yeah, it is. It's one of those hard, like, it's like, it is a, it's a tug pull. It's like, man, I, I don't want my wife to be my therapist, but in the same breath, um, man, the things that I've learned because she's just so is intelligent with that stuff. I, I can't hide it. I can't hide from it. She's like, sees right through me. So it's like, if I'm not living in my true identity. I'm screwed anyways. So, <laughs> well, that's, I was going to ask you that is like, you've hinted at it all along, but I want to ask you for you and your personal life. Like, how do you know when Michael McDonald, Mike McDonald is firing on all cylinders? Like when you, when you are in harmony with creation, with God, yourself, like it's all in tune. How do you know when that's happening? When I'm, when I'm secure in my identity Mm. is a big part of it. Um, if I'm worried that I'm not enough or, and that's for three on the Enneagram, that's our bit, one of our biggest, you know, things like I'm not lovable. I'm not enough. Like I, I need to do more. Um, so I, I feel when I'm out of sync for sure in those scenarios. And I often have to, and, and the other things too, like, to be honest, like if I'm name dropping or like in a, in an awkward way, or I'm like trying to, to share my accolades in an awkward way, which happens, I'll do it. Um, it's amazing though, is that I feel like as I get closer and closer to my true self, I catch it quicker. I, I, I'll catch it in the middle of a conversation versus after a conversation. Because afterwards, you just feel dirty. At least I do. I just know yeah. that I was like, man, why did I go down that rabbit trail? Uh, I totally was just trying to... And, and what it is, it's not that I actually think I'm really great. It's that I felt insecure. Yeah. I felt Definitely. insecure about my identity. And therefore, I needed to project something to try to draw you in for some reason. So I'm now like... And so I'm realizing in those moments, it's actually coming from a place of insecurity. And then that allows me to have a true, honest conversation about it. Why is that? Why do I feel insecure right now? Is it something to do with me and my wife? Is it something to do with me and my friends? Like, what is it that's, that's maybe, you know, tweaking that a bit? And so I feel harmonious when I'm, I'm secure in my identity. And for me, in my faith paradigm, that also comes from an understanding about what I believe uh, the creator thinks about me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that doesn't work for everybody because that's not the paradigm they, they sit in. But I, I do think um, for me, there's like an absolute, you know, place that I can at least sit in and go, I may not believe that my wife likes me every day or loves me every day, but I can believe at least in the core value that like God created me in his image and, and loves me and did that in a profound way um, because of the, and, and again, it's all in my language, but I can see the way that I feel God has reached out. And so, um, and then I can have honest conversations that are vulnerable with my wife and go, man, I feel like I'm sucking right now. Or I feel like I, you know, I don't feel secure in my identity. Can we have a conversation about that? One of the, uh, I guess it's maybe the wrong way to say, but for lack of a better term, types of people that I like to meet are, people who identify as Christians, um, but I don't feel judged and I don't feel sent to hell <laughs> in their mind. Yeah. Um, I, not that at this stage in my life, it really bothers me, but I just appreciate it because I feel like it's life finding a nice balance. And it seems like you have, and R- Ronald is someone, this is one of the real reasons I respect and admire him. Um, 
not to say that you have the same relationship with God and Christ or spirituality that Brian does, but, um, or Mike, sorry, Mike. Yeah. 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 You're good. My apologies. Um, but it seems like, you know, that joke where the guy's in the flood and then he prays and then like a boat comes and the guy, fuck off. I I got this. Where were you? Yeah. 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 Well, it it seems like, and I don't mean to put words, you know, the way I'm observing your life is that you have accepted those boats in your life, you know, the Enneagram, um, uh, psychology, you know, cause I've, I've heard people before, like maybe other Christians I've spoken to at different times, it, you know, kind of like, no, that's, that's not God. That's not Christianity. And, you know, no, no, no. And, and it always felt like there was something maybe now we can't talk as much, even if the only thing that like they're thriving in the way they've worked out their, their uh, relationship with God, it doesn't invite me in or maybe many other people to at least take part wow. in that discuss. And it seems like yours does. Well, I mean, I don't know if I always would have been this way. I think I probably would have been you know, could have, could have been other ways. I just know where I am today, which is, um, man, I need to be a lifelong learner. Like if I can do one thing with my life, it's, it's that, you know, we continue to learn and shape and grow and listen, every single one of us, if you do believe in, in a afterlife and everything, every single one of us is going to make it to heaven and meet Jesus and realize we had some bad theology. I don't care who you are, every single one of us. And if I'm going to err on one side or the other, because I'm going to err, if I'm going to err on one side or the other, I'm going to err on the error of grace and love versus anything else. That's just me. And I'm okay making those mistakes. You know, I'm going to, I, I've said this before, and I don't know if this is what you're talking about, but I've told people like, if I meet Jesus or whoever I'm meeting there um, and they go, you know what, Mike, you just weren't judgmental enough. I'm going to be like, okay. Fair. You got me on that one. Like put me where I need to go. But if, if he looks at me and goes, you know what, Mike, you just weren't loving enough. It's going to break my heart. So where I'm just going to err on the side of love versus the other way, because I'm okay with the outcome at the end of all of this. And that might be super simplified, but for me, it's just how I want to live my life. And, um, and honestly, there's just two, I've traveled enough. I think that's part of travel. You travel enough and you realize like, man, you, you, yeah, there's just so much we have to learn. And there, you know, when I, when I meet kids that don't have anything that are the happiest kids I've ever met in the streets of Uganda, I got to go, wow, this idea that if I just had this thing is going to make me happy is clearly a lie. Like that I can tell is a lie. And so why do we believe it over? And, and, and why are we trying to import this consumeristic, um, you know, way of thinking into all these other kind of, like, it just makes no sense when you travel and see and be a part of it. So, yeah, bro, that's, ex- that's exciting. I, I couldn't agree with you more on a lot of those points. And I, I was a pretty happy agnostic for a time in my life, like fully happy to accept science for all it had to offer. I love walking into a room and flipping on the switch and like, there's light and yeah. And trusting the doctors when I go to the doctor's office and not believing there's like a, you know, smoke I need to blow into something and like a dance I need to do in order for it to work. And, and <laughs> what hooked me back into any kind of faith was seeing the backwards economy of loving someone and the backwards economy of forgiving somebody. And then seeing the, the result of, the two-way street that that is. So loving a friend, being loved by a friend, forgiving somebody, being forgiven by someone. 
And I thought, that's weird. Like, I don't see that economy in the chaotic universe yeah. of love and forgiveness. Oh. Like, that's like, let me yep. look out into the galaxy with a telescope and like see that. Like, there's a lot of meaning there. There's a lot of meaning there. Yeah, and I, I and not only meaning, but I see like it does something, it actually causes something. There's a causational yeah. relationship. Like, a person was this, then they were loved, and now they are this. A person was this, then they were forgiven, and now they are this. And I don't mean forgiven by God. I mean forgiven by someone may, they may have harmed. And I, and I think, back to your point, most people, you know, I say this all the time, they're doing the best they can with what they got. Yeah. And like yep. you were saying about harming Melissa, lots of us are harming people around us, and we have very little understanding that's what we're doing. Yeah. And I tell my kids, you know, who do, who harm each other on a regular basis, <laughs> intentionally, unintentionally, Sometimes yeah, <laughs> is that if I step on my wife's foot, I may have not meant to do that, but I still have to apologize to her yeah. and say like, I'm sorry, I crushed your toe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm a 185 pound man. You're not. And, yeah. and your toe wasn't made to do that. I can see why you're in pain. I can see, and I can see her, like what it does when I do that for yeah. her when she has this space to be heard and understood. And then when it goes into, you know, you, and there's untold stories of, of intentional harm of even worse of, of murder of rape of all those other, you know, big ones. And then the power of forgiveness from victims or victims, families and all those things. And I hear that. And I think, Holy crap. I, I don't know what's in the space between the stars. I don't know yeah. what's in in the in the space between molecules but if it has anything to do with that then i'm going to do what mike does which is air on the side of love grace and forgiveness and if there's nothing at the end and the lights go out and the lights go out then like i will never regret loving someone or loving you know somebody yeah. more than that so yeah i appreciate no, being able to articulate about a lot of your words around that that's really beautiful um, anything else you just want? Just a quick yeah. housekeeping question. Yeah. From I'm lear- I've been learning what gnostic and agnostic mean, and I have to like read them over and over to really get the. And then gnosticism. And sure. would agnostics be considered pagan? It's a good question. It's a good question. I always understood the word to mean you don't have a specific faith, and you lean towards there being nothing, but you also have the door cracked open to. There, you could be wrong. Like, you don't, you don't have a, a, um, a way, you know, you're not like, you don't prescribe a certain right. ethos. Um, uh, I started to think of the big Lebowski with the nihilist. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> the whole conversation around that. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, but whereas a pagan would have another religion. A pagan would have, you. yeah, he would have a way or she would have a I way. See. And, and, and sometimes those are really valuable ways because they inform the reality and they give them meaning and they give them like a structure to have conversations around the bigger questions of their life. And agnosticism is, is, is really just like, I don't know. I'm okay if either way. Uh, and I'm not going to give it too much thought. And then, uh, and, and the interesting, I think Gnosticism, which yeah. is like, is like really is tied to the word secret. Like there's a secret way that there's a very narrow secret path that um, that if you know this, then you're going to be let in on this secret. And that, and it's not connected to Christianity. It's in some circles. It is, I, I would say for mainline Orthodox Christian Christianity, it's not, it's a little bit of a scary term. I'm not afraid of it, but um, 
historically in America, people are a little nervous about it. Okay, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, that's one step closer. I, I don't know if you were going to add to that. <laughs> no, I think it's a great, I mean, great summary. I think that, you know, unfortunately with our culture, the Gnostic side of things is pretty sexy. It could be kind of this idea of like, there's this really refined secret thing that if I just knew this, I'm going to be that much, you know, like there's, and that's, you know, that to me is person i'm not afraid of the gnostic side of stuff and, and going into some of this stuff i just think that anything that that makes things harder or smaller doesn't feel like a god that loves this whole this whole world like i'm gonna i'm gonna give you this one little key and this is the only thing that's going to potentially open up this door is just not what i believe around the creator of the the universe and like terms like law of attraction would that be today's mm-hmm. form of gnosticism that's a great question. Huh. And I don't know the answer to that, but I would I would say traditionally no. But okay. but that is a that's like a that's a great question. And I would I would need to think about that for a while. Huh. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. I didn't want to take it, but that no no. Like Something that you said, I the last thing I'd say too, because you said it, Ron, I just reminded me just simple. My wife is really good at these things too, around um uh there's intent. And then there's impact. Mm. And she uses those two words a lot. Like you either, you didn't intend to step on my toe, but there is an impact from you stepping on my toe. And we need to look at both. And what's hard as a male or not just a male, what's hard for me is that I often jump to intent without dealing with the impact. I often am defending, when I get into trouble, it's when I am, and I don't mean with, I just mean when I personally get into trouble, it's when I'm focusing on the intent and not actually addressing the impact. Like your can, intent or someone else's intent? My intent. So like if I, you know, if I did something that, that made Melissa feel a certain way, um, I'll often go, well, that wasn't what I was trying to stick. That wasn't my intent. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, yeah, but I still, do you care that it impacted me? Like, do you care that like, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, you know, hurt by this. Yeah, and it's like, no, I totally care that you're hurt by it, but I didn't mean to do that. So it shouldn't be a big deal. Like I'm trying to get to this place of safety as opposed to a pay- place of vulnerability, which is, oh, babe, I am so sorry that my action impacted you in that way. And I don't want to be that kind of husband. And so let's figure out, you know, like that's, yeah. it's hard. That's really hard. And as a person who's been in the trenches with, with couples <laughs> and has been in the trenches in a marriage that failed resulting in a divorce in a marriage that is now coming up on 13 years. If you are watching this and are like, I'm kind of interested in this about relationship, like that thing that we just learned from your wife, Melissa about intent and impact. I've never had that same words around it, but Holy shit. That is like, that is one of the biggest gold nuggets around resolving interpersonal tension that I've like, that's amazing. I will be, sharing that until I die. Like I'm going to be yeah. really mulling that over and thinking about that for a long time. It seems like it ties into nonviolent communication mm-hmm. and I feel statements. Like you're recognizing how the person feels. Yeah. You know? And Absolutely. what's funny is you take the, what you said and what, and the verbiage you have, you and your wife have around it and you apply it to like this Ronald stepping on the foot and it would be like, you step on their foot and then they, they're like fucking ow, you know? And you go, I didn't mean to do, I did not intend to do that at all. And you just keep walking. Like no one, right. would ever, who's going to do that. 
But yeah. we probably do that emotionally or in these more nuanced the interactions. Oh, we do it. Huh. Absolutely. And what's great is once, probably like nonviolent communication, but once you get a term for something, what's amazing is you can actually get to healing so much faster because mm-hmm. she can now, when I'm, I might reply with an intent and she can just say, babe, impact. Mm. And I'm like, babe, I'm really sorry that that <laughs> happened. Like, it's just, it's amazing. Cause I know what she, I'm like, okay, I just did the thing where I'm defending myself now wow. as opposed to, you know, going after the, the impact. So. That's Ooh, awesome. Okay. Uh, I'm going to have to get Melissa on here. This is really, oh, I love yeah. how like these breadcrumbs awesome. are leading into each other. And really? I mean, oh, she's the better guest. I mean, she's the brilliant <laughs> one. I just feel all, I steal all of her <laughs> stuff. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, man. Uh, dude, thank you so much for being on here. And a definite big shout out to your wife, Melissa McDonald. <laughs> thank you for the gifts that you've given us all <laughs> on here. Mm. And we hope to have you on here at some point. Uh, thanks for tuning in guys. And thank you, Mike McDonald. Is there anything that you want to plug or anything that you want to mention or anything like that? No, not at all. Just so thankful for this time and thankful for the conversation guys. I love that you're doing this with others and creating a safe place for, uh, for people to have these kind of conversations. It's needed. This is a big part of it. Take care. See you around. All right. Hey guys, welcome to field dressing portion of cutting for sign uh, where we unpack the conversation that we just had today. We had Mike McDonald on uh, an adventurer and I'd say uh, pretty close to, um, I want to say he's an expert, but definitely somebody who's made looking for the signs and signals and the clues in their life, uh, a part of their vernacular, yeah. a part of how they do life. And certainly somebody I thought of uh, when I first started this, like that guy is doing it. Um, one of the things that really stood out to me today was what we think we're going to talk about in a conversation of these, like it rarely is the point, you know, and I love what we were unpacking, uh, especially when we got to impact and intent in our life and our, with how we do life with other people and how we do life, what we perceive as harm and what we perceive as like, I didn't mean to do that. Yeah. And, and I can't wait to talk. I'm honestly, I'm going to be relentless, Melissa, if you're listening to this, to get you on here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I think that intent and impact thing, when it's not put in such a clear metaphor of like, stepping on someone's foot and not meaning to. Yeah. But you're just out there. It's so easy to get distracted by and overwhelmed by like, I, my intent is good. And maybe, maybe you don't even see the harm, yeah. but you, you know what I mean? Like totally. sometimes you don't see yeah. the harm you do, but you know, your intent's good. So how are you supposed to recognize that? And, and then all the gradations of, of harm, of what is it in impact of impact um, up to like, I stepped in your foot. Obviously I had an impact, yeah. you know, and just to have that on the radar and, and have that vernacular is great. So great. It's so great. I, I, I think of the phrase, which is also the name of a documentary, uh, which is called The True Cost. Uh, if you've seen that? Uh, no. Okay, so The True Cost is a documentary that for a while was on Netflix. And I'm not sure if it's still there. If you've not seen it, go check it out. And it, and it examines the impact that we have with our dollars when we buy clothes that are produced by companies who are in, the, in what's called fast fashion. Yeah. In other words, they're just pumping out cheap clothes. Yeah. And they talk about how the cost of everything in the last hundred years has gone up. 
everything, the cost of goods, the cost of water, the cost of fuel, everything has gone up. The only price of the goods that have gone down has been closed. And I'm like, why is that? And the answer was because we have continued to find cheaper and cheaper labor. And so what used to be made in America, then got made in Mexico, then got made in third world countries, and now is made in these like insane places all over the world. And, and the impact, the true cost is actually the lower quality of life for the folks who are making clothes for us. Um, and I think about that, like when you're asking, like, how do we know we're making an impact? Well, now that you know you have an impact is your responsibility to understand what your impact is. Right. And just have, just continuously be asking, like, what well, what is yeah. the true cost of this? What is the impact I'm having by not following my dreams? What is the impact yeah. I'm having by nice. only following my dreams? Like, yeah. is it is it impacting my spouse, my kids, my my future kids? What's the impact I'm having by being a, a gym rat? I don't know. Like, you know, whatever it yeah. might be, uh, you have to understand the true cost, the impact, all those things. I I know personally, and I do the cooking in my family because I'm good at it. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot to unpack. <laughs> I will not recant that statement. Yeah. <laughs> and and it bothers me, but it's funny because I hate grocery shopping. Like I mm. hate it. I try to make it as fast as I can. And one of the things that really bothers me is when I go to the meat section and I look at the packaging of the meat. You, you can't see the packaging if you're going to your local grocer and you see the cuts of meat that you're buying. Like it's, they're cuts of meat. And But the fact of the matter is it's coming from the same places that's in the, packaged meat in the refrigerated mm-hmm. section. Uh, it's just this perception of like having an old time butcher shop, you know? Yeah. Uh, and you look at like, where, where, where'd this meat come from? And, and I'm like, this meats comes from a thousand miles away. Or if you go to, you know, the, lo- the Safeway down the street and you buy a pound of, of organic grass fed beef. And you think this is from Australia. Like what the fuck? Yeah. Like the the true cost of this yeah. is their water, their dirt, their environment. Then it's being put on a boat. Yeah, all the carbon that's being spent to keep it frozen. <laughs> why am I boat. eating? Why is this here? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm paying five, six dollars for this. Like it, like it makes me feel like something's wrong. Like I can't quite put my finger on it. That's awesome. Um, and and so you know, part of what we talked about in this conversation was asking for help. And, and so I gave this, you know, I started telling my wife, like, I don't know how I feel about this. This is really bothering me. It's hard to find a butcher shop. I'm sure, you know, that's a luxury, right. To like actually go to a butcher shop and yeah. like buy meat. And, and as I began to really roll this problem around in my mind, you know, lo and behold, like a friend of mine who I hadn't connected with for a while, actually is out. It was, it was, um, Andrew, our first guest, <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. The guy, no, yeah, yeah. It, you know, he's like, you know, what I'm doing is I'm is I have friends who have animals on local ranches. They don't, they don't know what to do with because of COVID. They've oh. lost their they've lost their sales. Nice. So yeah. I'm gonna buy them. Right. I'm That's gonna awesome. butcher them and I'm gonna sell them, resell it to my friends for for at cost. Wow. And use the difference to fund a nonprofit. And I was like, here's you know, here's my money. Take it. And yeah. he delivered 
the first amount of meat to me yesterday. And I was like rich in all this like frozen meat. I was so happy. <laughs> My wife and kids were like not as excited about meat. They're just not that excited. I was like, you eat that meat. But I, I <laughs> almost with the pride of like, I brought that home and I killed it. I have way too much pride. I have way too much pride. No ownership of that. <laughs> but I like, oh, sorry. No, yeah. I like what you're saying about, um, it, having a sensitive radar essentially and and following one's intuition like like that's a lot of like your in, impetus uh and intent um with this podcast you know and hopefully impact positive impact is is like how do you how do we find our way you know and a lot of that does have to do with i think maybe well intuition yeah but what is intuition you know sometimes i think it's a part of you maybe that's not totally conscious that does has put the pieces together. Yeah. You just don't have words for it. Yeah. You don't have, it's a peripheral emotion, you know, mm-hmm. it's a peripheral understanding. It's a peripheral, um, into it or whatever. Yeah. Um, but boy, those things, um, when we can clue into them, th- those become pretty, well, pretty clear. Yeah. It's like, maybe I don't know what that means, but I'm having a feeling. Mm-hmm. And then now I can turn toward that and maybe tease it out. a little bit. You know, uh, I think that intuition, this is something that I guessed a few episodes ago, uh, Oscar Marino talked about. Yeah. And if you've not heard that one, go back and listen to it. That was good. Uh, you know, he talks about like, we're all born with that ability to listen, that ability to find the sign, that ability to cut for sign. And, and I want to say, whoever's listening to this, if you feel like you're disconnected from that, that's actually a skill you can relearn. It's a skill that you can become sensitive again to. I was... Um, on a hunting trip with Andrew, actually, and and we were we were stalking elk, and you and as you do, what you're looking for is you're looking for trees that have been rubbed by their antlers. Of course, you're looking for footprints. You're looking for droppings, and then you're also kind of looking for like, if I was an elk, where would I go? And you do have yeah. to begin to feel into yeah. like your heart and. And, uh, and there's three of us, I'm not going to name names, but there's three of us on that hunt. And two of us were like, man, we feel, we both feel like, like right through there (laughs) is elk heaven. And one of us was like, (laughs) bullshit guys. Like there's no way elk are over there. And, and we had to go down this like very steep ravine up another steep ravine, the side of this wall, these two walls up, down and up. We're going through brush that's like chin high, holding our bows above, like the whole deal. And we come through and we're like an elk nirvana, like this completely covered place. And there's like elk droppings on the ground that still are steaming. Oh, of course, wow. they heard us coming through and probably smell this, but they, it's like still steaming. And oh, we're just exciting. like, holy crap. And, we, and so we're, we're moving through brush that's like just freshly broken you know, the long story, we didn't find the elk that we were trying to get to, but like there was something in, in two of us that like felt, yeah. felt that that was there. And, and I want to say, trust that feeling. Like if you know, like that feeling I had in the grocery store, like this isn't right. I don't know the answer to this. I don't exactly know how to, what do I do? I yeah. still need to buy this. Like, or, you know, maybe I, maybe I don't, I don't know, but the, the, the answer will come to you. Like it will begin to become clear. I thought that's a phrase you just use become clear. I like well, that. There's ways to practice it too. Mm-hmm. I actually do actively work on this mm-hmm. and 
It comes up in different ways. Uh, sometimes it comes up in saying something, hmm. like an uh, idea to say something will come from my mind. Yeah. But then it almost instantly feels like it's too late to say. Hmm. And what I've done is I ignore that idea that it's too late and say it anyway. Maybe it's a joke or maybe it's hmm. a compliment for to someone. Maybe yeah. it's an observation. Yeah. You know, a lot of times this is with strangers. Yeah. And I, I've had that happen on this podcast hmm. several times. Hmm. Where you go, that agnostic uh, yeah. question in here. I was like, no, this has been on my mind mm. lately, and it kind of fits here. And I bet these guys have something to say. Oh, but, you know, um, that's just a definition of something. You can look it up on your own. Of course you can, but we're, yeah. it, it can spark something more. And yeah. so I find that intuitive as a muscle can be uh, flexed with um, – asking questions and giving compliments, things like that, but also helping people. Cause I think this is the same, the same um, muscle and maybe I'm wrong here, but I, I think there's something to this when someone drops something um, uh, and you're nearby, you're closer to the thing they dropped than yeah. them. Maybe there's an, in there a stranger, maybe there's an impulse to like step over and keep going or, or they'll get it, you know, and that, that helped the person who's like, I don't know, something is clearly if you were a family member hanging out with them, you would give them a hand. And that's the same muscle too, you know, pulling over to stop and something looks weird. You know, all of that stuff is all what we're talking about. And that, that totally applies to the same muscle group of, of exploring and discovering the impact of your own actions. You know, you know, what's really interesting is, is, um, I try to force myself. I have since I actually it was the it was the cowboy that was one of the first people to kind of open that door for me. And he and I a few times have um, done these like livestock deliveries and the farm equipment deliveries, like where we would do these marathon drives, like all night long to drive to our destination, turn right back around, drive back with this equipment or whatever it was. And he was the guy, first guy, um, who's like, oh, that woman's struggling with a flat tire let's help and yeah and we pull over and fix a tire or something and and that kind of thing that like spidey sense of yeah. like i can be of service here Absolutely. and i've tried to do that as an adult i've tried to do that even even in the city you know where we live portland i try to do that when i'm on a run yeah. or nice. something like That's that great. yeah and how has that been you know i i if anything, it just, I just feel like I, it's selfish. If anything, it's selfish. And I'm just glad I did it. You know, I have a sense of like, it's a job well done. Yeah. And, um, I, sometimes I laugh, like I was in forest park the other day going for a run and a uh, husband and wife and their newborn are like looking at a map, trying to figure out how to get back to the, to their, their car. And I was like, you guys need help. And, yes, exactly. You know, and they're like, yeah, you know, does this trail I'm like, no, you just go back that way. And I started to laugh. I was running away. I was like, I hope that's right. Yeah, oh, man. <laughs> you're just helping for the sake of helping. Yeah. <laughs> I feel so good. Is it right? <laughs> I mean, I know. I mean, I felt like it no, was I right, but you, you know. That's hilarious. But those those moments, it just, it, what it does for me is it like builds the trust, the trust muscle of trusting myself yeah, and trusting. T- totally. Yeah. 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 That's, that's great. Yeah, um, there's another example I have, but it does, you know, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I think you you learn you relearn it by doing, and I love what Mike said, which is like fail forward. Like it's okay to do it messy. Yeah. It's okay to be wrong. Um, and what we've d- been discussing is like, and realize we have impact. We know our intent is good. 
we just question our impact. Is it, is it serving? Is it of quality? Is it progressive? Is it progressing us is what I mean by that. And, uh, and if we did harm to somebody, are we willing to say, I, I am sorry. <laughs> sorry. I smashed your toe. Despite our intent. Yeah. 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 So, despite our intent. Yeah. yeah. This is a great guy to talk to. And I just, I value so many of the things that he talked about, you know, he's, he's like, in an organization organization that's helping people on a large scale. And, but then the, the fact that he and that organization both value bringing that, um, f- uh, helping abroad to helping here. I didn't get it's to share important. this example with him, but one of the families they helped, uh, they helped plant here in town. I met in the early days and the dad, uh, was pretty educated and had started school to get his PhD in electrical engineering here in Portland. And it'd been a while since I saw him and I ran into him again. I'm like, how are you doing? He's like, I just got my PhD. And, and I was so pumped for him. I was like, I mean, like, where was he from? Iraq. Yeah. He came here as a refugee and got his PhD. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. And I was like, that's America. You know, like, like, that's that dude too, man. Totally. Yeah. 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 Big time. Big time. Dang. Yeah. It was I mean, it's like, I just think like he changed his life. He changed his life and his kids' lives. Yeah. And, and that is incredible. Yeah. What an incredible thing to do. Right. That's like the old world story where, you know, someone who really appreciates the stuff that maybe like we like, yeah, who knows? And they see the opportunity and then. Like you said, um, this country can support that, and the combination of those two things makes this thing happen. Where you just go, okay, I need to get on my shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> totally, totally, guys. Uh, if you liked today, and you're really questioning, can I hear from God? Can I follow in my? Can I learn to follow my intuition? You know what Daniel and I just talked about. Is, yes, you can. Uh, also, know that I do this on a basically daily level. I talk to men all the time, helping them regain trust and intimacy with their intuition, with their ability to hear from God. That's, that's language Mike and I would say. That's not language you would probably say. I think they're essentially the same thing, which is you're being led into a greater version of yourself, into what Paulo Coelho would say, your personal legend, which like Mike said, is like a hundred different things. You know, you don't have to find this thing, this very narrow thing that only that is going to unlock your life, you know? it's a choice. It's a, it, and that's cool. Like you get to decide what that is. And I've talked to guys full spectrum, like guys who have made in, incredible amounts of money only to go, this isn't in alignment with my heart. How do I retune into that? And I've talked to guys on the very beginning of their journey going, I don't even know where to begin. And, and the cool thing is, is the solution's the same tune back in, tuning back into their heart understanding how to trust their intuition, understanding how to hear from God and then act on it. And then allow the, the, the repetition, we, we say rep it out, the repetition, the time, the effort, like the, those two things coming together changes lives. So if you need any of that stuff, reach out to me. Um, you know where to find me. Okay, see you guys.